This week, Toys Propco 2 files bankruptcy plan, Claire's order to modify marketing process, Intelsat attempts to delever. More on all this, and as always, updates from Puerto Rico and Venezuela. Welcome to the week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Karen Lung, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, legal analyst Teresa Lee sat down with Damian Jurens and Katrina Pape of Reorg's new litigation intelligence team to discuss market-moving patent litigations and the multi-district litigation against the pharmaceutical supply chain on the opioid crisis. It's Sunday, June 17th. Multiple entities within the Toys R Us bankruptcy pushed forward with their plans this week. The PropCo 2 debtors filed a plan and disclosure statement contemplating the sale of 123 real properties located in 29 states. A $480 million credit bid from PropCo 2 Trust will serve as the stocking horse bid at the auction if one is held. According to the disclosure statement, the stocking horse bidder will acquire, quote, all of the real, personal, tangible, intangible, and other property. The purchaser will also assume certain liabilities. The disclosure statement says that, quote, substantially all of PropCo 2's revenues and cash flows derive from payments from Toys Delaware under the master lease. According to the notice filed, Delaware will reject the master lease as of June 30th. Lazard will act as investment banker, and ANG Realty Partners will act as real estate consultant and broker. Moving to the Delaware entities, the debtors filed a notice on Wednesday detailing successful and backup bidders in the auction of certain Toys Delaware real estate assets. Successful bidders disclosed on the exhibit include, among others, existing landlords, Big Lots, Scandinavian Designs, Ollie's Bargain Outlet, Ashley Furniture, and Raymore and Flanagan. According to the notice, the auction remains open for any real estate asset not listed. In other retail news, on Wednesday, Judge Mary Walrath ruled that the Claire's debtors must consider other forms of bids besides what was described as the, quote, payout event in the debtors' restructuring support agreement. This payout event required approximately $1.9 billion of first lien and structurally senior debt claims to be paid in full in cash. The judge said that there may be new alternative bids that provide more value for all creditors. The judge also said that she was, quote, disturbed by certain aspects of the marketing process, specifically noting that the 30-day initial marketing period was too short and extensions were only given on an ad hoc basis to bidders that requested extensions. Another point of concern raised by the judge was that the debtors and their board of directors finance committee appear to be, quote, too close to Apollo. The hearing followed an objection filed by the UCC to the debtor's disclosure statement. The UCC took aim at what it called the debtor's artificially low $1.4 billion valuation and said confirmation has, quote, zero chance of success. Oaktree, the largest second lien creditor, has also provided details of, quote, far more favorable exit financing facilities. Claire's reported first quarter results showed the continued bifurcation between North America same-store sales, which increased 5.4%, and European sales, which decreased 9.9%. Through the second quarter to date, Claire's said that sales have increased approximately 1% for the company as a whole. Intelsat began the week announcing a new $300 million convertible notes offering and a $200 million stock offering. 
proceeds of the notes, which were later upsized to $350 million, and the equity offering would be lent to a new entity, Envision Holding, that would sit above the company's ICF entity but below its Lux entity. The company said it will use net proceeds to purchase either through a tender or open market purchases, the company's 7.75% senior notes due 2021, at, quote, acceptable prices. In the accompanying prospectus, Intelsat disclosed indications of interest from BC Partners for part of the equity offering, along with discussions with a holder of 2021 notes regarding a sale of such notes at a discount to par. Intelsat did say that if it is unable to purchase the 2021 notes at acceptable prices, it would use proceeds for general corporate purposes, including the repurchase of other indebtedness at ICF or Luxembourg. In conjunction with the offering, Intelsat announced that it lowered its capital expenditure guidance between $75 million and $100 million per year in each of the next three years. Intelsat continues to wait on a vote at the FCC on a notice of proposed rulemaking regarding Intelsat's C-band proposal. The company said that the chairman of the FCC indicated this vote could take place in July. On the island of Puerto Rico Monday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain issued an order holding the Commonwealth Cafina dispute motions for summary judgment in abeyance for 60 days until August 4th. In filings regarding the request for abeyance, Assured Guarantee and the ad hoc group of general obligation bondholders asserted that the agreement in principle contains, quote, important defects and serious flaws and urged the agents to engage with creditor constituencies regarding the terms of the proposed settlement. Later in the week, the Official Committee of Unsecured Creditors in Puerto Rico's Title III cases, as Commonwealth agent in the Commonwealth Cafina dispute, filed a motion seeking to establish procedures governing the 5.5 portion of the sales and use taxes collected by the Commonwealth on or after July 1st, pending the implementation of the Commonwealth Cafina settlement. The motion explains that after receiving feedback from several parties, the UCC seeks to modify the escrow mechanism contained in the agent's June 7th term sheet. The UCC seeks to establish, quote, less disruptive procedures to preserve the status quo of the Commonwealth's and COFINA's respective rights to the 5.5% sales and use tax revenue collected on or after July 1st, while the agents, quote, work towards documenting and obtaining court approval of the settlement. The Venezuelan government picked local bank executive Iris Medina to act as the state-run oil firm's new chief financial officer. Medina began serving in her new post on Wednesday, according to a decree disclosing her new designation that was published in the official government gazette. The appointment comes as the Venezuelan government continues to grapple with sanctions from several countries, including the United States. Medina succeeds Ileana Ruza, who served as CFO for just under four months. Ruza took over from Simon Zerpa, who was hit with sanctions by the U.S. in August, shortly after the government installed a national constituent assembly. Other top red stories of the week were, number one, advisors circle American tire distributors after suppliers form competitor. Number two, motion to dismiss briefing commences in four more opioid cases in the Northern District of Ohio. Number three, SuperValue proposes hold co-reorganization would require 101% repurchase offer under 2021-2022 notes. 
And now we'll pass it over to Jim Holloway for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Thank you, Karen, and good morning, one and all and sundry. And much like last week, this week's disturbances in the distressed world are concentrated in the courthouse, beginning with a sale hearing for Nine West and a state court status check for EcoBat, both on Monday, June 18th. On Tuesday, June 19th, we have a summary judgment hearing in ResCap. And not to mention what could be the most drama in Oklahoma City since 1959 when the state government repealed its ban on the sale of spiritus liquors. I'm referring, of course, to the Sandridge shareholder meeting, that company, of course, being engaged in a proxy fight with Mr. Carl Icahn. Sandridge, which was founded in 2006 by Mr. Tom L. Ward, Tom L. being co-founder of Chesapeake Energy with the legendary Aubrey McClendon, said on Friday that it had been approached by no less than 17 suitors who were interested in buying its rock, most of which is in the Midcon and the Narabrara. On Wednesday, June 20th, we have disclosure statement hearing in Enduro. On Thursday, June 21st, we have an amended plan confirmation hearing for HCR Manicare and some omnibuses, two as it happens, one for Tops and the other for Rex Energy. I actually thought the plural of omnibus would be omnibi, since that's how you construct the plural in Latin, but no, it's omnibuses. Now you know. And if I may be permitted to continue with the classical antiquity idea and quote Homer, the epic chronicler of the Trojan Wars and the voyages of Odysseus, on Friday, June 22nd, the child of morning, the rosy-fingered dawn, will rise upon the expiration of the mediation and exclusive plan filing period in Pacific Drilling. And I'm going to stop right there. Over to you, Karen. Thanks, Jim. I'm going to hand it off to Teresa now, who's with Damien and Katrina to discuss the cases that are being covered by the Reorg Litigation Intelligence team. Thanks. I'm Teresa Lee, and here with me today is the patent team from Reorg's newest product, Reorg Litigation Intelligence, which is set to launch later this year. The product covers market-moving litigations in federal courts, PTAB, and the ITC, providing deep coverage of docket filings and courtroom action for the investor community. Led by former patent and corporate litigators, the product currently focuses on healthcare, pharmaceuticals, and technology verticals. The team includes Damian Jurens and Katrina Pape. Damien is a legal analyst specializing in patents who was formerly with Baker McKenzie and Latham and Watkins, and Katie was formerly a clerk for Judge Robert Drain of the Southern District of New York and an associate at Deckert. It's great to have you both with me here today. Now, this podcast provides a broad overview of the Patent Trial and Appeal Board, or PTAB, the International Trade Commission, or ITC, the district court, and the federal court, and each venue's impact and relationship with patent litigation. And additionally, this podcast will touch on what a multi-district litigation is and the current status of the opioid MDL. So, Damien, I'm going to start with you. You primarily cover patent litigation matters. So, let's start off simple. What is a patent? Thanks, Teresa. Uh, A patent is just a property right granted by the U.S. government that gives someone the exclusive right to make, use, or sell an invention. Now, they're generally good for 20 years after the date on which the initial application is filed, and they're only granted to new and novel inventions, though most patent litigators will tell you that's not always true. Uh, The companies we follow in the tech and pharma spaces generally have substantial intellectual property portfolios, and sometimes they assert those patents against competitors in patent litigation actions. Now, can you walk us through a typical patent litigation action? How does it start? Uh, Where is the case filed? And what is usually at stake? Well, the cases we cover originate in the district courts all over the country, although certain districts are more popular than others. For example, the Eastern District of Texas 
is a hotbed of patent activity because it's seen as plaintiff friendly, though there was a recent Supreme Court case that makes it more difficult to pick and choose the most favorable venues. The Northern District of California sees a lot of tech cases because of its proximity to uh, Silicon Valley. And New Jersey and Delaware get a lot of pharma-related patent cases because so many drug companies are based there. Litigation typically begins with the patent holder acting as plaintiff, alleging that the defendant, which is usually one of their direct competitors, infringed certain patents. There are, however, cases known as declaratory judgment actions, where the would-be defendant is actually the plaintiff, and that plaintiff asks the court that to find that no infringement has occurred before the patent holder has a chance to file its own action. So now you mentioned pharma-related patent cases. Are those generally different than tech cases, and how does the FDA fit into that? <laughs> well, to be honest, the answer to that question could take up an entire podcast. Uh, suffice it to say that, yes, they're different. In the pharma space, patent litigations are often triggered by abbreviated new drug applications that are known as ANDAs. Then there's a whole regulatory scheme surrounding how patents fit into the FDA's workings, including something called the Hatch-Waxman Act that dictates some of the machinations of lawsuits that involve patents that are listed in the FDA's Orange Book. Again, this could fill another entire podcast, but at a high level, the Orange Book, which is actually a publication called Approved Drug Products with Therapeutic Equivalence Evaluations, contains exclusivity and patent information for drugs that are approved by the FDA. Wow, fair enough. So back to the basics. What kinds of issues do district courts address in patent infringement actions? Well, the two big issues that come up in all of these cases are infringement and validity. Infringement just means whether a competitor's product is covered by the claims of your patent. Validity means whether the patent should have been issued by the Patent and Trademark Office in the first place. Now, the PTO issues thousands of patents each year, and PTO examiners have to churn through a ton of applications. This leads to a lot of patents that are not necessarily all that innovative. So virtually every patent infringement action leads the defendant to call the validity of that patent into question. And since 2012, questions of valid validity excuse me, are often brought to the PTAB as part of the IPR process. Okay, so you mentioned the PTAB and the IPR process. Can you just briefly explain what those are? Sure. Well, first of all, the PTAB stands for Patent Trial and Appeal Board, and it's basically an administrative court that's set up to review patents. The PTAB cases that we follow are called IPRs, which stands for Interpartis Review. The IPR process was created as part of the, of the uh, America Invents Act, and it's meant to be a relatively fast and efficient way to deal with issues of patent validity while taking some pressure off the district courts, which tend to be overburdened with long, complex patent litigation actions. The process begins when someone files a petition with the PTAB, and it can be virtually anyone, though in the cases we follow, it's usually the defendant in a related district court case. And what's in the petition? Well, the petition includes the petitioner's arguments for invalidating the patent, and those arguments are limited to a certain word count, 14,000 words, which comes out to roughly 60 pages. So petitioners have to be careful what they argue. Once that petition is filed, the PTAB reviews it and, within six months, makes a decision either to institute a trial or to deny a trial based on whether it believes the petitioner is likely to succeed in invalidating at least one patent claim. If a trial is instituted, then a final written decision is issued within 12 months of the decision to institute. So, Damien, if I'm understanding you correctly, there are possibly two important inflection points in the PTAB process. So first, within six months of the petition, the PTAB will institute or deny a trial. And the second is, if the trial is instituted, then a final written decision will come out within 12 months. So am I correct in thinking that the whole process takes somewhere around 18 months from start to finish? You got it, Teresa. Nicely done. So does the PTAB review for infringement and validity like the district court? 
Uh, no, actually, the PTAB only reviews for validity. The idea is that it's a second look at the patent by the commission. It's important to know that a recent Supreme Court case, which is called SAS v, v, v Iancu, I hope I'm pro pronouncing that correctly, held that the PTAB can only review based on what is in the initial petition. In other words, the PTAB can't make up its own arguments. It can only decide based on the merits of the petitioner's argument. And does the PTAB review patents that are part of a district court action at the same time? Oh, yes, definitely. In fact, one of the sections of the AIA requires a party to file an IPR petition within 12 months of the patent being asserted against the party in di a district court litigation. So anyone can file a petition, but if you're hit with a patent infringement suit and want to challenge the patent at the PTAB, you have to do it within a year. And how does the Court of Appeals fit into all of this? So as with virtually any litigation, the final judgment or decision isn't really final until it goes through the appeals process. All patent-related appeals go through the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. That includes district court decisions and PTAB final written decisions, as well as ITC final determinations, which we'll get into in a minute. As a rule, if a patent is invalidated at the district court or PTAB, the PTO is not notified until the appeals process is played out. I see. And does the federal court, does the federal circuit often reverse patent invalidations? Uh, no, actually, the rate of reversal is relatively low. It does happen, however, so it ain't over till it's over. Okay. And so now shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned the ITC earlier. How do they fit into all of this? Well, the International Trade Commission, or ITC, is an administrative court, sort of like the PTAB. There are a few quirks to the ITC, though. For example, in the patent realm, its powers are limited to the enforcement of in Section 337 of the Tariff Act, which prohibits unfair practices in import trade. That means it only investigates matters that relate to the importation of products that infringe U.S. patents. And that's a term of art at the ITC. It's a, quote, investigation, unquote, rather than a litigation, even though there are adverse parties. Every investigation involves a complainant, which is basically a plaintiff, and respondents, which are basically defendants. So it's called an investigation, but it's really more like litigation between adverse parties. Right. Also, the only remedy available at the ITC is injunctive relief. In other words, you can only ask the ITC to issue an order halting the import and sale of infringing products. Now, the process feels a lot like a district court trial, but it kind of happens in a vacuum. That is, ITC decisions have no bearing on any district court or PTAB action. So if the ITC finds a patent invalid, no notice is sent to the PTO, and that patent is still available to be asserted in any district court. Companies often pursue ITC investigations, though, because they're a relatively fast way to block competitive products. ITC investigations generally last 18 months, which is a lot faster than most district courts. So what are some examples of cases that reorg litigation intelligence is following that span across these various venues? Well, on the pharma side, the Capaxone litigation is a good example that incorporates the district court, the PTAB, and the federal circuit. It's also significant for investors, as Capaxone is a top revenue-generating specialty product franchise for pharma giant Teva. As we've reported, Teva recently headed to the Federal Circuit for oral arguments on several patents that were invalidated by the District of Delaware and the PTAB related to, to Paxone. <clears throat> Excuse me. Decisions are pending for both of those appeals. Now, the fact is, because of the way pharma patent litigation is set up, the ITC doesn't really handle drug-related investigations. However, the ITC does handle a lot of tech and heavy industrial inves investigations. On the tech side, probably the best example is the fight between TiVo and Comcast. So far, TiVo has attacked Comcast with two ITC investigations and multiple district court actions in the Southern District of New York, the District of Massachusetts, and the Central District of California. Now, Comcast is hit back 
with 45 IPR petitions targeting 15 patents. The PTAB instituted trial on 29 of those 45 petitions, putting claims of 12 patents in jeopardy. The ITC found in TiVo's favor back in November and blocked Comcast's X1 set-top boxes from importation into the U.S. Now that decision is currently pending appeal at the Federal Circuit. There's also a second ITC investigation that was filed in February and is currently underway. There are a couple important hearings in that investigation in July and October, and it's set to wrap up on August 16th of next year. Oh, and one of the district court actions in the Southern District of New York is still charging ahead while the others are stayed pending either the IPR process or the ITC investigations. That fight is kind of all over the place. Well, talk about significant numbers. So, Katie, I want to turn to you. I understand that research litigation intelligence also covers some non-patent cases, such as the multi-district litigation surrounding the opioid epidemic. What is a multi-district litigation, or an MDL as we call it? Thanks, Teresa. An MDL is a special federal legal procedure that combines all similar complex actions into one jurisdiction for the purposes of pretrial procedures. The purpose of this transfer, or centralization as it's known, is to avoid duplication of discovery, to prevent inconsistent pretrial rulings, and to conserve the resources of the parties, their counsel, and the judiciary. Initially, the MDL panel first determines whether civil actions pending in a multitude of different federal districts involve one or more questions of fact, such that the action should be transferred to one federal district for coordinated or consolidated pretrial proceedings. And secondly, the MDL L panel selects the judge or judges and court assigned to conduct that proceeding. Interesting. So who are the judges on the MDL panel? Currently, the panel always consists of seven sitting judges who are appointed to serve by the Chief Justice of the United States. The applicable statute provides that no two panel members can be from the same federal judicial circuit. So how often does a litigation become a multi-district litigation? Since the MDL panel's inception in 1968, the panel has considered motions for centralization in more than 2,700 dockets, which involve over 600,000 cases and millions of claims. These dockets encompass litigation categories in a wide array of categories, including airplane crashes, train wrecks, hotel fires, also mass torts, such as those involving asbestos, drugs, and other product liability cases. Some of these cases also involve marketing and sales practices, patent validity and infringement, antitrust price fixing, data security breaches, security fraud, among others. Wow, talk about some high profile matters. Uh, Currently, how many MDLs are pending in the United States? As of May 15th, there were 221 MDLs spread across 50 different districts in front of 178 different judges. So let's talk a little bit about the National Prescription Opiate MDL. Can you tell me a little bit about what's going on in that case? Certainly. Without going into too much detail because the opioid litigation is extremely complex, I'll give you a little insight into the situation. In December 2017, 2017, the MDL panel consolidated 64 cases pending in nine districts before Judge Dan Polster, who sits in the Northern District of Ohio. Currently, this is the only MDL pending before Judge Polster. 
These opioid MDL cases concern the alleged improper marketing and inappropriate distribution of various prescription opiate medications into cities, states, towns across the country. While I'm going to talk today about the MDL, which is in the federal court, folks should be mindful, though, that there are many other actions playing out in state courts throughout the country. For example, just to name one, the Delaware Attorney General has brought an action against several pharmaceutical companies, distributors, and retailers in the Superior Court of the state of Delaware. That case is also in the motion to dismiss stage, with briefing concluding in mid-August. Turning back to the opioid MDL, the defendants there include a variety of opioid manufacturers, distributors, and retail pharmacies as well. Some of the defendants include companies that Reorg America's covers, like Indo International, Teva Pharmaceuticals, Mallinckrodt, and Rite Aid. One reason that this litigation is so complex is because the entire pharmaceutical supply chain is involved the opioid manufacturers, the distributors, the retail pharmacies, and then also doctors who prescribe these drugs. As of today, since the panel's initial transfer order in December 2017, 2017 the panel has transferred many more opioid-related cases to Judge Polster, with approximately 735 actions pending before him. In total, the panel has entered 35 conditional transfer transfer orders, transferring related cases to Judge Polster. Right. So so just to summarize what you just said, it seems like what's happening is that the entire pharmaceutical supply chain is being sued for um, improper marketing and inappropriate distribution of opiate medications. Can you tell us what the current status of this MDL is? That's exactly right, Teresa. Um, right now, the opioid MDL is pretty early on in its litigation, and amended complaints are still being filed. However, as I mentioned before, motions to dismiss have started coming in in a few of the actions, with briefing on those motions to be completed in mid-July. Judge Polster has assigned Magistrate Judge David Ruiz to prepare and issue a report and recommended decisions on those motions, and any objections would be resolved by Judge Polster. The eventual ruling on these motions will determine what claims, if any, remain in each of these actions. And what is Judge Polster's general approach been with respect to the opioid MDL? <laughs> judge Polster has taken a unique approach in regards to this MDL in comparison to other judges. And it's clear there's an aspect of social responsibility to resolve this litigation. Throughout the past six months, Judge Polster has repeatedly made clear that he wants the cases to settle. For one example, at a January 9th status conference, he said that he would prefer the MDL to settle in a way that, quote, is not just moving money around because this is an ongoing crisis, end quote. He said that, quote, what we've got to do is dramatically reduce the number of the pills that are out there and make sure that the pills that are out there are being used properly, end quote. Speaking to the widespread nature of the issue, Judge Polster continued, quote, in my humble opinion, everyone shares some of the responsibility and no one has done enough to abate it. That includes the manufacturers, the distributors, the pharmacies, the doctors, the federal government and state government, local governments, hospitals, third party payers and individuals. Just about everyone we've got on both sides of the equation in this case. 
The federal court is probably the least likely branch of government to try and tackle this, but candidly, the other branches of government, federal and state, have punted. So here, so it's here, unquote. Those are pretty strong words coming from a judge, and in my experience, you often don't see judges making such comments in MDLs that they oversee. Um, one other point about how the cases are being handled, after a March 6 closed meeting between Judge Polster and the party's negotiating teams and representatives of many state attorney general offices, Judge Polster realized that there had to be a dual track for the cases. Um, so he set a settlement track and a litigation track. After the MDL panel consolidated the action in December, he had originally stayed the action, which is also a novel approach because he so firmly believed that the cases could settle. Um, that stay concluded, though, on April 9th when he entered a scheduling management order, which sets a variety of deadlines and created the actual litigation track and settlement track. This is, well, this is definitely a very unusual situation, particularly considering the nature of the underlying problem, which is the opioid epidemic. Can you tell me a little bit more about the case management order that the judge entered? Sure. This order sets a schedule for the three track one cases that he chose, and a three-week trial is scheduled to begin on March 18th, 2019. Meanwhile, the parties are still meeting for settlement discussions, but at the same time, the cases are being litigated in the hopes that the litigation track will aid in a settlement. All three track one cases were filed in the Northern District of Ohio, which is where Judge Polster sits, and this means that he can preside over their trial. If a case originates from a jurisdiction outside of the Northern District of Ohio, Judge Polster can only preside over the case's pretrial proceedings and discovery. And cases of this type that are not originally filed in the Northern District of Ohio will need to eventually be sent back to the original court for trial. So, Katie, what you're saying is that any cases that are not resolved or settled before trial and were not originally filed in the Northern District of Ohio will need to be sent back to their original court for trial, right? Yes, precisely, Teresa. Okay, so what should folks be looking out for as the next big event in this litigation? I'd suggest that folks keep an eye out for Magistrate Judge Ruiz's eventual report and recommended decisions to see what he recommends in regards to the motions to dismiss. I'd also keep an eye out for the next open status conference, which has not yet been scheduled, but I would imagine there will be another one in Q3. Also, it'll be interesting to see whether Judge Polster sticks with the March 2019 trial date in the three track one cases or if that date gets pushed back. Okay, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye out uh, on the opioid litigation front. And of course, um, we will be continuing to follow the various patent litigations that Damien discussed earlier. So I want to thank both Damien and Katie for joining me today. It's been great to have you and to have Ruerg Litigation Intelligence on our podcast today. And for our listeners, that's all for today, and you can tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page. Or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Karen Lung, and this has been The Week in Reorg. <laughs>